We've been in our series this year, and we're asking one really big question all year. We're asking the question, what do I believe? And this summer, we're using the book of Ephesians, which is such a great um, book to help us understand what we believe. So much theological truth and understanding and knowledge and growth in the book of Ephesians. So I hope you're excited about jumping into it with us. And this morning, we're going to be in chapter 2, verse 10. You can get there if you'd like. You can turn in your Bible there. You can turn your Bible on. However you like to get to your Bible this morning, get to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10. But let me begin with a question. Actually, a couple of them. What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about how he saved the world? How's that work? And lastly, what do you believe happens to you when you die? Questions about Jesus and the condition of our heart and our soul, and our spirit, and questions about forever are the most important questions that we ask ever. They're the most important question. There's nothing more important than answering that question, understanding that question, and living in the answer to that question. And this morning, Paul's going to answer those questions. (laughs) Who is Jesus? How important is he? How did he save us? And what's eternity look like? All of those questions, those extremely important questions, get answered in this incredibly important letter to a church in Ephesus called Ephesians. But more importantly, these questions get answered very succinctly, very importantly, and very vividly in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. They might be some of the most pinnacle verses in the entire New Testament, because they reveal to us something incredibly important, and that is that Jesus saves. That's what he's done. That's what he's doing. Now, our future and our present are dictated entirely on this belief, on what we think about it, on how we choose to live it out in our lives, and how we choose to let it dictate who we are as people, the things that we read in Ephesians chapter two. It's incredibly important. C.S. Lewis said it like this. I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun has arisen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Now here's C.S. Lewis's point. Jesus not only helps us salvation, not only does he help us understand what salvation is, but he helps us see everything else correctly in life and into eternity. Without him, we don't get what we're supposed to be doing now, and we don't get where we're supposed to be later. See, in Christ, we understand all of that, and that's why this series is incredibly important, and that's why this letter to the Ephesians is incredibly important to us today, because we understand what it means to live in Jesus Christ, in relationship with him, changes our present and our future forever. So look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Now in the first three verses, Paul is, uh, he's, he's very systematic, and he's very kind of line upon line, precept upon precept, and he builds from one thing to the next to the next. In the next verse section of verses 3 through 10, he doesn't do that. He just spiderwebs everywhere. How many of you know what a spiderweb talker is? You know what I'm talking about? Like they start something over here, but they don't finish it. And then they jump to something else over here. And you're like, wait a second, you didn't finish that over there. And they just start talking about something else. And you're like, whoa, 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 you didn't finish over here. And so you're kind of stuck over here for a minute. And then he adds a third thing. And you're like, what? You didn't finish number two now. What's going on? And then you spider web over here and you're all over the place and you're all over the map. And then in the end, he just brings it all together. That's the apostle Paul in in verses four through 10. But in verses one through three, he kind of says it exactly like it needs to be said. And so verses one through three, I'd like us to look at together and just kind of make some points as we go along. And then verses three through 10, four through 10, we'll read together and then uh, we'll we'll get the big picture of it. So uh, let's look at Ephesians chapter two, verse one. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. So let's stop there. 
Paul says, as for you, and he's talking specifically to each of us, okay? So this now becomes a very personal statement. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. So he's, he's speaking to each of us. He's speaking to all of us, every generation, every single person that's ever lived on the planet. He's making it personal. He's talking to each of us. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. See, Paul is laying out the future and the present for every generation and every human being on the planet in these next 10 verses, but specifically right here, to understand the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy, the kindness of God, to understand who God is, we must understand our reality without him. Like, see, we understand our reality with him because we live in him, but we also have to understand our reality without him. In Romans 6.23, Paul said the wages of sin is death. In other words, the consequence of our sin is death. Death, Paul says, is our future without Christ. Without being in Christ, death is our future. This is why over and over and over and over again, as we've read through the Gospels, you've noticed that Jesus talks a lot about what? Life. And he says things like, I am the way and the truth and the life. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is what we have in Christ because what we have without Christ is death in our sin, which takes us to verse two. As for you, you were dead in transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So the second thing Paul says is very interesting as well. Now remember that Paul is talking to the believers in Ephesus. He's not talking to non-believers. The, the letter is written to believers in Christ. So he's talking to them about their past before Christ but he's also talking to them about who they are in Christ. And so he uses this phrase. This is who you used to be or how you used to live. So he's reminding us of our past without Christ to help us understand how much we have in Christ. He says, you used to follow the ways of this world. In Romans 12, he said it like this, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. What Paul is saying to us as believers in Christ is we don't live like the world anymore. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you don't live like the world anymore. That's the way you used to live. Now you really understand how life is supposed to be. You really, because of God's word and because of God's spirit inside you, you actually are understanding what it really means to live as a husband, as a father, as a boss, as a coworker, as an employee, as a neighbor. You're really understanding the full concept of that from God's word because you're understanding how your heavenly father created you to live and how he created you to be and how he created you to think and how he created you to live and how he created you to love. See, we are embracing a completely new way to live from our creator and savior, Jesus Christ. And putting into practice the teachings of Jesus and God's word is more important, Paul says, than the philosophy of this world. Now, Paul goes actually even a little bit deeper. And he also says something interesting. He says there's also a spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Now he goes deeper. So first of all, he says, physically, this is just kind of what, what's happening. You used to just kind of follow the way of the world. Like physically, we can all see that happening. But now Paul goes deeper into the human heart and into the human spirit. And he says, there's also a spirit at work in those who are disobedient. In other words, he's referring to the demonic, to what Satan does in the world now. That there's a specific spirit that's an antichrist, John would say in 1 John. An antichrist working to destroy mankind. Working to destroy your heart and mind and the mind and the heart of every single one on this planet. And in, in particular, how does this spirit work? Makes us disobedient to God. The more we're disobedient to God, the more we don't want him in our lives. 
the more we don't want his love and his grace and his kindness. And it distracts us and disrupts us and helps us ignore God when we are disobedient because we're, we're, we just kind of get consumed by our own passions, our own desires, our own selfishness. And before we know it, we're just this disobedient narcissist. See, disobedience to God and his word is the way that, that Paul says Satan just kind of works in the world. It's also the way he works in us. As Christians, as people who are called to obey God and to obey his word, the easiest way for us as Christians even to get off track and, and, and forget about God's plans and just kind of get stuck is to have something in our life that we're disobedient to the Lord in. And, and we might be obedient in a ton of stuff, but there's like a, just a couple things or maybe even just one thing that we're just kind of disobedient to the Lord in. And that one thing just kind of keeps us hung up, just keeps us in this stronghold of the enemy instead of living in the freedom and the forgiveness and the grace of Christ. Disobedience to God is not how we are called to live today. It's how we used to live, Paul says. It's not how we're living now. It's how we used to live. Jesus said it a couple ways too. In John 14, 23, Jesus said, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. In John 15, 9 and 10, he said, as the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. And our obedience to God is really important. And as we have seen generation after generation, it's happening now in our generation, but that's not new. It happens all the time. It happens everywhere in the world. But sometimes our obedience to God even causes the world to hate us. And in John 15, 18, Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. This, this is who we are. That there will be times when we live in the fullness of the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ that the world will say, I don't like that because I want to continue to be disobedient to the Lord. And so sometimes you'll get in conversations or you'll get in relationships or you'll get in situations where you sometimes wonder, how come, how come this is so stressful and difficult? I'm not even doing anything rude or mean. It has nothing to do with what you see happening in the physical. It has everything to do with what's going on in the spiritual. That your spirit, the spirit of you, Christ, the Holy Spirit is in conflict with the person standing right next to you. And even though you're not saying anything or doing anything or challenging anything, there may be this division and this struggle in this other person because the spirit in them wants them to be disobedient to the Lord. And there's the struggle. There's this spiritual struggle that's happening right in the moment. And sometimes it will even manifest itself in the physical. That's verse two. Verse three, Paul goes on. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now the primary way, as we said before, the primary way that Satan is tricking and destroying mankind is to encourage us to follow the world, the gratify, to gratify the cravings of our flesh. Now, you'll see this in Scripture too. It's another dichotomy. It's another contrast. We had life and death in a minute, right? Now we have flesh and spirit. These two contrasting things. We also have other things in Scripture, right? Darkness and light. We see these contrasting ideas and philosophies of life in Scripture. And here's another one. Flesh and spirit, so the flesh, my flesh, what my selfishness wants to do, what the cravings of my, my sinful nature want to do are opposite from what the Holy Spirit wants me to do. And so this is so great. This is why Jesus said um, to the disciples and says to us today, you need the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the one that encourages us to live in the Spirit, not in our flesh. The Holy Spirit encourages us to fix our eyes not on what's seen and the pleasure of the moment, but to fix our eyes on the unseen eternal life that we have in Christ. See, Paul is describing following ourselves, our own passions and desires versus following Jesus and the spirit that he has placed in us. And then Paul says something kind of challenging. He says, if you, if you spend your whole life following your flesh 
and you disobey God your entire life, then you're deserving of wrath. Now that's kind of a challenging phrase. Like what does that mean? What does deserving of wrath mean? Well, let me use an illustration to help us with this concept. A wealthy father had a son and a daughter. And the kids were one year apart. And the wealthy father decided that he wanted to buy a house for his kids when they went off to college so they would have a place to live. And that would be about the same as buying both of them housing, but then they'd have a house and he could pay it off later and they could make some money along the way. And so the wealthy father said, I'm gonna buy you guys a house so that when you go to college, you can live in it. So he found this very nice house on a very nice block and uh, the, the house was beautiful. The yard was beautiful. The, it had flowers and shrubs, a nice garden in the back, had a new refrigerator and stove and dishwasher. The father had it completely furnished so that the kids would have beds and couches and everything on the inside. And so they really have, they're, they're really just completely taken care of. And he told his son and his daughter that they needed to take care of the property, be responsible for its upkeep. He was counting on them, and so were their neighbors. The daughter was the first to go to college, and she started living in the house. And then about a year later, the son graduated from high school, and he, he started living in the house with her as well. And the father and the mother would often call their kids and text their kids and talk to them and try to talk to them. But as, as things started going along, they noticed that their replies were, were quite minimal. It was beginning to feel like his kids didn't even want a relationship with him and his mother. So one day the father just decided, hey, I think I'll just sew up and surprise my kids today and bless them a little bit. Well, what's wrong with that? You guys are laughing like. So he shows up to the house and if you laughed, you know what's happening, right? The house looks horrible. I mean, it's in, it's in utter disarray. There's no more yard, there's no more garden, there's no more flowers, the shrubs are dying. The yard looks like it hasn't been watered or mowed in a year and a half. Everything's dead and dying on the outside. There's trash in the front yard and in the backyard. It's just a disaster. He has a key, so he goes inside the house and it's worse in there. The furniture's broken. There's a giant burn mark in the middle of the carpet. The dishwasher doesn't work. There's a bedroom door falling off. He found a broken window with plastic over it. It, it looked like it, it hadn't been cleaned for maybe a year and it just smelled really bad and there was trash all over. He couldn't find his kids. So he went outside and one of the neighbors saw him coming out the door and kind of quickly made a beeline over there and asked him, hey, what, what's, what are you doing? And he asked the neighbor, he told the neighbor, I'm the father of the kids that live in this house. And he asked the neighbor how his kids were treating the neighbors and, and he didn't get a good report. The kids were rude. They were unkind. They did whatever they wanted without thinking about how it would affect the neighbors or anyone else. And they just really just were focused on themselves. Now, let me ask you a question. Would anyone say that the father was unjustified if he took the house away from the kids and told them that they would be on their own until they learned to grow up and be responsible? No. Father's completely justified in that action. Because he's the one that gave them everything. What if the kids said, Dad, we don't really want a relationship with you. We don't even like that you give us stuff and then make us take care of it. And we just want to do what we want to do, so buzz off. Now it's gotten worse. We would say that these kids were what? Deserving of wrath. They're deserving of what they're going to get. Now here's what Paul is saying. We do the exact same thing to God. We do the exact same thing to him. He gave us a beautiful planet. We don't take care of it. He created us and put us here. He told us how to treat one another, and the only thing we can think of to do is kill one another. He asks us to be in relationship with him, and we say, no, 
I want to do my own thing. Leave me alone. In fact, we'll make up our own gods and our own ideas about how the world was made so that we can completely remove you from our thinking and our lives. We'll make our own societies and how we should live and our own government and we'll think it's better than yours. And we'll just figure out our own way to live without you. Paul calls that deserving of wrath. That's what Paul is saying. Would God be justified if he just walked away? Absolutely. He'd be completely justified if he just walked away. But this takes us to one of the most important words in the New Testament. It's the word, but. Turn to your neighbor and say, but. Verse four, it's supposed to be dual funny. Yes, it's okay. Verse four starts with this transitional word. But. Now what does but mean? But means that God's not going to walk away. But means he's not going to watch us drown in our sin. He's going to make a way for us to be rescued. He's going to pursue a relationship with us even though we don't want one with him. He's going to pour out his love and his mercy and his grace and his kindness over and over and over and over again, and he will never stop until the end of time. He's going to make the sacrifice to make things right so humanity can be saved, even though we don't want to be saved or even understand why we need saving. But means that this is not the end of the story. God will write a new chapter that includes an opportunity for everyone to be saved. But means God will show that he is love. But means God is merciful, gracious, and faithful to all generations. Verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. This word but is really important because it transitions us from where we were to where we are in Christ because of God. I think there's a couple things that we should notice, several truths that we should understand and believe from these verses. The first one is we have to notice God's effort in our salvation process, right? It, this is extremely important to notice God's effort in our salvation process because what Paul is declaring to us is that we didn't really think of the process at all. <laughs> We were just off craving the desires of our own self. We never would have even thought of being saved or that we needed to. God thought it up. God desired it. And he did that in four ways. The first, by his love. See, love motivated God to make a radical decision. A radical decision. Love motivated God so much that it, that he chose to leave heaven and come here, knowing everything that would happen to him when he came, knowing that the cross was before him, one of the most torturous deaths we've devised as humankind. God knew that, but he also knows that that's what was required to save us. And he did that because that's who he is. That's his character. He loves See, so you make sacrifices for people you love. That must mean that God loves you a lot. It said he was rich in mercy. Now, this is important, right? 
He didn't skimp on mercy. He was rich with it. He didn't say, I'll give the minimum amount of mercy that is needed. I'll be rich with mercy. I'll give tons of it, more than is needed. Let me give you an example. When I make chocolate chip cookies, I make them different than maybe the recipe. I don't care that the recipe says to only put one cup of chocolate chips in the batter. No, dump the whole bag in there. That's the whole point. Rich with chocolate chips, right? That's what you want. You don't want a cookie with four chocolate chips in it. You want a cookie with 40 chocolate chips in it. Like really what we're talking about is chocolate with dough, not dough with chocolate, right? That's what we want. That's what God did. He was rich in mercy. Why? Because we were rich in selfishness. We needed the mercy and we need God to be rich with it, always giving it, pouring it out all the time. And then it says that he was giving in grace as well. He's giving mercy and he's giving grace. Sometimes, do you ever get caught up in what do these two words mean? They seem so similar. Well, let me help you. Here's the difference between mercy and grace. Mercy is not getting what you deserve, okay? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve, okay? So mercy is not getting eternal death. Grace is getting eternal life. Wow, this is getting good. Let me explain it to you this way. You're speeding through a school zone. You're late to work and you think, oh no, there won't be any kids in the street. I won't run any four-year-olds over. So you're just zipping through the school zone and an officer pulls you over and you're like, oh crud. And he asks for your driver's license and your insurance and you're just like, you know you're guilty. Like there's no question, right? And he looks him over and he says, well, I'm feeling merciful today, so I'm not going to give you a speeding ticket. That's mercy, not getting something you deserve. But then he pulls a $100 bill out of his wallet. He gives it to you and he says, have a great day. Grace. Now you're getting something you don't deserve. You're not getting a ticket that you fully deserve. And now you're getting a hundred bucks that you don't deserve. This is mercy and grace. And then the fourth thing that Paul says God did is he expressed kindness. Kindness. Now here's what's interesting to me about kindness. Kindness is almost always something you do for someone else. Now, there are times that you need to be kind to yourself. You need to look at yourself in the mirror and say, I like that person. That's okay, and you need to be kind to yourself. But for the most part, kindness is something you do for someone else. In God's case, this is a crazy kindness. Like this kind of kindness, it doesn't even make sense that you would go and die for the people that hate you, have made up other gods so that they can disavow you in their life, and then have made up their own kingdoms and ideas and philosophies so that they can keep you out of it. And God says, those are the people I really like. Anybody been in a relationship where you really felt like this person does not like me and you stuck in it? Like, this is great. I love that this person really doesn't like me. And they treat me rudely every time I talk to them and they never have kind words to say. And on social media, they're always bashing me. Ah, oh, I just really want to be in a relationship with this person. The only people that would do that are what? Crazy kindness people. That's who God is. He's like crazy kind. He doesn't even care how awful we are to him. He's just crazy kind because he sees the potential in us, the opportunity for relationship. And because he can see all that and we can't, he'll do crazy kind things for you and for me, salvation being one, but other things along the way in our relationship with him over and over and over again, simply because that's who he is. And so what do we see in this process of salvation? Who's doing all the work? God is. We're not doing nothing. Squat. God
God's doing all the work. He's doing everything. He's the one loving, being rich in mercy, giving grace, expressing kindness, which leads us to the second thing. Notice something else very cool about these verses, and it is the awesomeness of being in Christ. Paul now tells us there are some really, really cool and awesome things that happen in our lives as a result of being in relationship with Jesus, as a result of being in Christ, as a result of being with Christ in relationship with him. There are several things. The first one is you are made alive. That in Christ you are made alive in him. Now being made alive, like I mentioned before, it's a contrast statement. Being made alive in, in verse 4 Sorry, verse 5, the beginning of verse 5, made alive with Christ. That is the contrast to verse 1, that you are dead in your transgressions and your sins. That's the contrast. Without Christ, you're dead in your transgressions. In Christ, you are made alive. You have eternal life. In Christ, we are made alive, but it doesn't stop there. In Christ we are made alive, but we are also raised up with Christ, Paul says. This is the next awesome part of being in Christ. This phrase is in reference to the resurrection of Christ. When we believe in Jesus, we become connected to Jesus, the Bible tells us. Romans 6, 5 says, For if you have been united with him in a death like his, you will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. See, when we are in Christ, we are connected in relationship with Jesus in an incredible and an important bond. And that bond saves us through his death and it, it raises us in Christ through his resurrection. This connection forgives our sins through Jesus' death and raises us up with Christ through his resurrection. In other words, just like Jesus after the resurrection left the planet and went straight to heaven, that's exactly what will happen for you and I. On the day of our death, on the moment of our death, we will do exactly what Jesus did because we live in the power of Christ. We will leave this planet immediately and be in the presence of the Lord. Just like Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. That's how it works. But not only did, is the awesomeness of being in Christ that he made us alive and that he raised us up with Christ, but then Paul says he even seated you with Christ in the heavenly realms. Now what Paul is saying is getting a, a little bit interesting. Seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. This is in reference to the authority that you have as a child, as a son, and a daughter of the king. You are seated in power with Christ in the heavenly realm. Just like Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father in all power and all authority, amen, you and I, Paul says, are also seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. Now, as a believer in Jesus, what does that mean? It means that you can actually be in two places at once. So if somebody asks you, is it possible for you to be in two places at once? You get to say what? Yes. Not just because I'm a mom, but because I'm a Christian. <laughs> because I'm in Christ. We know that that's the special power and ability of a mom, right? Like, how do they do that? But it's also the special privilege and authority of a Christ follower. You are made alive with Christ. You are raised up with Christ. You are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. So you can answer, yes, I know what it means to be at one place right here, right now at Cheney Face Center sitting in this nice chair. But I'm also seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. I also am right in Jesus' presence right now through the power of the Spirit. Now, we understand that even in the physical. If the president goes to Mozambique, he's physically in Mozambique, but does he have all the authority and the power of the president of the United States from the White House? Absolutely. We get that. That's what Paul is saying. That as a follower of Christ, wherever you go, whatever you do, wherever, whatever you're going through in your life, you have authority in Christ because you are seated with Christ. Do you understand the awesomeness of what Jesus has done in your life when he made you alive, when he raised you up with Christ, when he seated you with Christ in the heavenly realms? And it's not even done yet. He also created you to do good works. 
that he prepared in advance for you to do. Now, what does that mean? What do you mean you prepared things in advance for me to do? Well, it means this, that God made you special. It means that God has placed special gifts in your life, talents in your life, and he made you very special and unique. He created you just the way you are. There are certain things that you can do that other people can't do, and you're supposed to use your gifts and your talents to do good things that God has prepared in advance for you to do so that people can see that Jesus is working through you. See, in Christ, we are created to do good works. We are created to serve. We're not created to sit. We're created to serve. Part of being in Christ is an attitude and and the taking on of the life of a servant, just like Jesus did for us. Church is meant to be a place where we all serve together. Our lives should have good works in them. There should be certain things that each and every one of us are doing that are good things for other people so that people see the Jesus in us. Now, not because you're, you think you're earning your salvation. That's not at all how it works. In fact, that leads us to the last and the best awesome part of being in Christ. And that is that it is by grace that you have been saved. You're not saved because you're doing good works. It is by grace you have been saved. And this is so important that Paul says it twice. Twice in this section of verses. The first time, he says, Jesus has made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Verse eight, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast. It's almost like verse nine, God is saying, I know that if you did it, you would spend your entire life boasting as a human about what you did. (laughs) Gosh, God really knows us well, doesn't he? Because that's exactly what we would do, wouldn't we? (laughs) That's exactly what we would do. And so God said, it's not gonna be about you at all. I'm not even gonna give a, a hint of anything that the enemy could do there and get in. It is by grace we have been saved because Jesus saves, we don't. Now Paul says several things about this grace. In verse four and five, he says, we were dead in our sins, but God showed grace. Remember, grace is getting something you don't deserve. The point that scripture is making is that we weren't even thinking about relationship with God, but he was thinking about relationship with us. He wanted relationship with us. He wanted to do life with us, even when we wanted to be on our own. Even when we were dead in our transgressions and our sins and didn't notice it, God said, I still want relationship with you. In verse seven, he says, our future is full of grace. It's interesting, there's this little phrase in verse seven, he says this, in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And here's what's interesting. What Paul says is our future is full of grace. Our past was full of grace at the cross. Our present is full of grace when we say yes to Jesus and live in him. And our future in the coming ages will be full of grace. What we will see in heaven and what we will see tomorrow and next week and a year from now is God's grace always working. And when we get to heaven, we will see the incomparable riches of God's grace that he poured out on us so that we might be saved. It will be evident in heaven how much we have because of God's grace that we have received and believed when we said we wanted to be in Christ. Lastly, grace is the gift of God. It's the gift of God. Now, this is important for us to understand. It's not the result of our goodness or our works. It is is the gift of God. Now, there's several things about a gift that we have to understand, right? 
You don't earn a gift. It's given freely. Doesn't cost you a dime. When you get a gift, somebody thought of it on their own and they gave it to you. Didn't cost you anything. We are not receiving grace because we've earned it or did anything to deserve it. In fact, just the opposite. We were going our own way, ignoring God and the goodness of God that he had for us poured out his grace. See, grace is not a paycheck. It's not something you earn. It's not something you work for. It's a gift. It's something you receive. A gift is something special that someone else pays for. A gift also must be opened and it must be used. Anybody have a gift at home that's still wrapped and you haven't used it yet? Not many of us, right? You get the gift and you're like, oh, this is so cool. Now, some of us, maybe the gift is waiting for a specific moment. Like I'll give you an example. People like to give me Cabela's cards. Well, it's still sitting in my drawer. Why? Because I'm cashing the gifts up. I'm waiting till I can get to that certain dollar amount so that I can use the gift to buy something really special, right? Like you might do something like that, but still you didn't earn it. You didn't earn it. We get to live in the grace of God because we are in Christ. And our gift, the gift of grace, is open. It's used every day. You and I are interacting with the grace of God all throughout the day, all the time. Our lives are meant to glorify Jesus and serve him wholeheartedly. And so the grace of God is coming in and hopefully it's going out all the time as you love on people and smile at someone and help somebody out and do some good works and show up at the food bank on Wednesday morning and give out food, whatever it is that you're choosing to do, mow your neighbor's lawn free of charge, whatever the things that you choose to do in the name of Jesus Christ, you're living in the grace of God. See, it's easy for us to see from these verses that God loves us. I mean, it's pretty easy to see. It's also easier to see in our generation because we can see a generation where the world is really just kind of going its own way without God. And we see the challenges that that is creating and the hurt that it's creating and the pain that we see in people because they just won't acknowledge that Jesus is the answer to our life. That's where we come in. What should we do? What should we do about this love and this mercy and this grace and this crazy kindness? Well, the first thing we should do is accept it. Believe it. We should let Jesus save us. So if you haven't let Jesus save you yet, then you should. That's the obvious one that's just sitting there right in front of us for the taking. Let Jesus save you. And then the second one is true as well for those that know Jesus and are in Jesus, it's simple. Live for Jesus. Like literally just walk out the door and start living a radical life for Jesus Christ. See, the world needs the believers in Jesus to show them what a redeemed life looks like. That's what they need. They need the good works prepared in advance for us to do. It's up to us those who are in Christ, to reveal God's effort to save us, the awesomeness of being in Christ, and the grace that we have been given in Christ Jesus. Would you stand with me? I wanted us to end this morning with this song that is really, I think, a powerful statement and kind of matches what Ephesians 2 says and that is that we have a good father that's who he is but he also has done great things for us too and that's who we are
And so could we just sing this out this morning as we leave and then I'll come back up and we'll just pray and, and close our time together. Jesus for showing us in your word this morning and in song that this is who you are you're a good father that's been loving us throughout all the time even when we choose to be disobedient even when we choose to go our own way and sometimes your love was harder than at other times because you simply had to do something very difficult to make sure that we didn't get eternally stuck in something very damaging but that's your love too your discipline is just as much your love as your mercy and your grace and your crazy kindness that's who you are but Lord sometimes we don't see this because we just can't look in the mirror and see it but you did this so that we could discover who we are. That that's who we are. We are made alive. We are raised up with Christ. We are seated with Christ. We are created in Christ to do good works. This is our true identity in Christ. Not what the world's telling us. Not even what our own flesh is telling us. 
all those things are lies. They're not the real way that we're called to live. If there's someone here that this morning, or maybe you're even watching online, you might even watch next week. Anytime you watch this, any day, any moment can be a moment that you can say yes to Jesus. So I don't want to leave without saying it. If you've recognized this morning the love of God, and you've also recognized your own disobedience, and you realize, I need to embrace the love of God for me in Christ Jesus. I need to get saved, and I need to choose Jesus and stop choosing myself. If that's where you're at, and you just want to start a relationship with Jesus, would you just raise your hand where you're at? And if you're online, you can just raise your hand right wherever you are. You can be in your car or at your house or walking down the street. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Could we just pray for those this morning that have raised their hand and for those that might be raising their hand online? Let's just say a simple prayer of salvation to Jesus. Let's say it all together. It's a great reminder for those of us that have been saved too. Ready? Dear Jesus, thank you so much for your love and your grace and your mercy and your kindness that you want to pour out upon my life. Thank you that you died for my sin. I admit that I'm a sinner and I ask you to forgive me. I believe in your resurrection and I believe that I will be with you in heaven one day. As a result of saying, I believe in Jesus. I ask your Holy Spirit to come to live in me, to help me live for Jesus every day of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Could we just give those a hand that just said yes to Jesus and that are too? Well, thanks for coming this morning and thanks for this great book. I I hope you'll find some time to just talk with other people as well about Ephesians. In fact, I'll give you an opportunity out on the patio if you'd like. So we're going to head to the patio. We've got some great stuff waiting for us out there. Always remember, Jesus loves you very much. So do Kate and I. Have a great week.